thing is heavy. Where's Brian Scott when you need him, right? <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's such an honor to be with all of you here this morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Brian Scott. I'm a member here at Trinity. Uh, I'm also currently working on a master's degree in theology at Fuller Theological Seminary. I've been here in New York City for about five years now, and this morning I have the great privilege of preaching and, and giving the sermon and continuing this series in Philippians that we've been going through. And a few months ago, I had the chance to preach, and at that time, I preached about Elijah, and I covered three chapters in the Old Testament, in first, in second, first Kings, and it went for almost 45 minutes, <laughs> which is about 15 to 20 minutes past the allotted time I was given. So I noticed when they reached out to me this time, they said, Brian, we'd love to have you preach again. I was like, great, that's awesome. They said, Brian, here's 11 verses you can preach on. <laughs> but what they don't know is in preparing for this sermon... I found an old Charles Spurgeon sermon, and he was, a, he was a pastor from the 19th century. And I found a, a sermon he did just on chapter 3, verse 20, that went for an hour and a half. <laughs> so Spurgeon, challenge accepted, all right? <laughs> no, I'm obviously just playing. I'll get you guys out of here today. But I am really excited to be back up here and to be continuing this Living Large series that we've been doing where we're looking through the letter to the Philippians that Paul wrote. And today, as, as you heard read, we're going to be looking primarily at chapter 3, verses 12 through uh, chapter 4, verse 1. And in this section, there's two main points that Paul is making. And we'll see actually how in this section he connects back to some of the texts that we've already gone over. So, as some of you have noticed, as we've been moving through Philippians, it's actually really unique among Paul's writings. Philippians is, first off, some of the most joyful we see Paul. You know, if you read Galatians or some of his other writings, you can tell that he has a special relationship with this church. He has a special place in his heart for these people. He knows them really well, and they know him, and he's really joyful to be writing to them. And secondly, in Philippians, there's no specific topic that Paul's addressing. So in almost all of Paul's other letters, he has one topic or kind of a, a very specific central theme that he's writing to, and Philippians isn't like that. So we kind of have to ask ourselves, what's Paul doing here in Philippians? What is he writing about? And what he's doing is he's telling a series of short vignettes or stories that all revolve around this one story. And that one story is a hymn or a poem that's found in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. And you really can't understand the rest of Philippians if you just kind of glaze over that section. So before we dive into the verses for today, we need to take a look at that first. We need to look at this hymn or poem, it's chapters, chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. 
And obviously this is talking about Christ. And it says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that's the gospel. That's what that is. And if we don't understand this that we just read, and by understand, I mean the basics of the gospel presented here, that God in Christ humbled himself to become a man, to die for us for the redemption of his creation. If we don't get that, then the rest of the letter is going to sound like a combination of rambling and maybe some, some good life advice sprinkled in. Which, honestly, that's really what a lot of the world thinks of Christianity anyway. Because they don't get the gospel. If you don't understand this, then Christianity is some rambling with some good life advice sprinkled in. But, Paul is doing so much more than that. And he's building it around this hymn or this poem. And, and I keep calling it a hymn or a poem because that's probably what it is. I mean, we can, we can say, I mean, you even see here, the structure is a little different probably than most of the time when you see verses kind of strung together. You know, we can look at the grammar and the structure and say, okay, this is probably a hymn or a poem, and it probably was preexistent to Paul's writing. And Paul probably didn't come up with this. He's including it in the letter because it's something that the church at Philippi would have been familiar with. It's kind of like a pastor's going through a sermon and then all of a sudden they break out into the Lord's Prayer, right? And everybody in the congregation starts praying along. They start speaking out loud. That's what Paul is doing here. Because these letters were read to the churches. And so probably what would have happened is as you get to this section, everybody there in the church at Philippi would have started reading and, and reciting this along with what was going on in the letter. So he's snapping them back to this reality that everything's based in. He has his introduction in chapter 1, and then he wants to draw their attention back to the gospel of Christ. And let's look specifically at this summary of the gospel, because it's, it's unique in the way it's worded. So it says Christ didn't use his equality with God to his advantage or comfort. It's saying he used it to become a man, an obedient servant of God, and he saw that his equality with God called him to love others wholly and self-sacrificially and to be obedient to death. Because that's God's character. And what Paul's doing, as I said earlier, is he's going to move on throughout the rest of this letter. It's all vignettes, it's all stories built around this. Because Paul's writing and what we're looking at today is actually about showing that the Christian life is a retelling of Christ's life. And Paul's encouraging the church in Philippians, and us by extension, to live our lives in a way that's uniquely manifested in Christ. And that's echoed by mature believers, and specifically in the following chapters, he's going to look at himself, 
He's going to talk about Timothy, Epaphroditus, and he's going to give the Philippians a specific way to them that they can do this in their life. Now, I'd love to spend hours, and there's books written just specifically on this section. And I encourage you all to, to reread through this section this week, to think on it, because really, this is the good news. This is a beautiful story. And even throughout my sermon, think back to this, because this is what it's all rooted in. But for now, we're going to move on to chapter 3. And this is verses 12 to 17. It's the first part of what you saw read today. And this is where Paul says, Not that I've already attained all this, or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a look, a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained, joining together and following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you, you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So, Last week, James covered the first part of chapter 3, right? You remember this. It was, it's where Paul's talking about all those accolades and all those privileges and the status that he had as a Jew among the Jews, the tribe of Benjamin. He'd been a Pharisee. He'd really, he'd accomplished it as far as being a Jew. And then once he gained Christ, he recognized how those things were garbage or, or dung as the word that that Paul actually uses as, as James went over with us, or it might have been a slightly more intense word that I'm not going to use from the pulpit. But those things added up to nothing, and Christ adds up to everything. So in verse 17, we see Paul say, follow me as an example of how to live your life as a retelling of Christ's life. Paul's showing how his own story echoes Christ's story, because he didn't consider his status that he'd achieve as a Jew among the Jews as something to be taken advantage of, but as something to forsake, to empty himself in the greatest possible way that he as Paul could do, to gain Christ and love others through that, just as Christ emptied himself and didn't see his status as something to be taken advantage of. So, Paul is saying, as I've made myself nothing, if I was given up any privilege that I had in this world for the Philippians and for my fellow brothers and sisters, be like me. He's pointing back at himself and saying, look at what I do and emulate that. And that sounds really kind of pious, doesn't it? Like we might get kind of uncomfortable when we hear people talk like that. You know, if, if James got up here on Sunday and was like, you've guys seen how I've lived, now go out and live as James. We might get kind of uncomfortable with that. That doesn't sit well with us. We think, what a pious punk you are. Like, I'm not doing, I'm finding a new church, right? But let's, let's put this a different way. Let's, let's really look at what Paul's saying here. Let's, let's put this in a different way. So I'm a big tennis player. And, and I mean that too. I'm a big tennis player. Like most tennis players aren't my size. It was always hilarious in high school. I think I was the only person to like letter in football and tennis. Um, I'd walk out on the court and there'd be like this five foot five kid just terrified looking up at me. But 
Uh, so I'm a really big tennis player. I've been playing all my life. I love tennis. And if I got the chance to take lessons with Serena Williams, that'd be really cool. I'd be into that. She has sent more tennis balls. She's been playing tennis. She's been living the life, basically, of a pro tennis player since she was born and before I was even alive. And so if I got the chance to take lessons from her, I'd be psyched, right? And we go out there on the court. She's out there hitting forehands. And she does a few, and she says, all right, Brian, now come up here. And you see the way I hit that? You see the way I was gripping the racket? Now try and, try and do it like that. I look at Serena Williams. And I say, what a pious piece right here. Serena Williams, you are telling me to be like you? Who do you think you are? 23-time Grand Slam singles champion. Serena Williams, who do you think you are to tell me how to play tennis? Right? That sounds crazy. We know that's not how we are. We know we can learn things from people who've been doing what we want to do for longer. People who've been spending time striving and training and praying and evangelizing and seeking God for longer than us. And that's what Paul's saying here. Paul's not saying he's perfect, just as I'm sure Serena wouldn't say she's a perfect tennis player. She's close, but she's not perfect, right? But... Paul, in verses 12 and 14, he says the same thing. He says, I'm not perfect. I know I have more growing, more pressing on to do is the term he uses. And what's funny, I love this. In verse 15, actually, it says, all of us then who are mature should take a view of things. So he's basically saying that mature Christians are the ones who know they're not yet mature. Right? And so... If you remember what I said Philippians is all about, and what Paul's doing here, he's showing that the Christian life should be a lived retelling of Christ's life, Christ's story. And so Paul's saying, be like me when I imitate Christ. And I know I don't do this all the time, but I'm striving to do it more and more. And that striving, that pressing on, is part of what I want to exemplify for you. Be like me when I empty myself of the status that came with my previous life for others and for Christ and following his example. And in fact, Paul, lest you think he's, he's too stuck up here, he's given two other examples. Earlier, actually, it's the chapter before. He's given two other examples because he wants them to see how this living the Christian life, living Christ's story out in your life, how it looks different in different people. So the first one that he shows is Timothy. And this is verses uh, 219 to 24. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Remember, he's in prison writing to this church. He says, that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me 
and I am confident in the Lord that I will come myself soon. I pray that at some point in your life, somebody can talk about you the way that Paul talks about Timothy here. I have no one else like him. He will show genuine concern for your welfare because everyone looks out for their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. Notice here Paul's connecting these two things. He's saying that by showing genuine concern for the Philippians, he is looking out for the interests of Christ. The interests of Christ are the Philippians. And that's what Timothy will do. So he's saying that just as Christ showed concern for us and in that way looked out for the interests of the Father, Timothy will look out for you in that way look out for the interests of Christ. Now the second person that he gives them as an example is Epaphroditus. So that's right after this section on Timothy. It's 225 to 30. And Epaphroditus is someone that they knew. So he was a Philippian. It says, I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who's also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs for he longs for all of you and is distressed because he heard, you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God have mercy on me, and not on him only, but also on me, on him, sorry, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. So like we said, Epaphroditus is someone they knew really well. He was a Philippian. And what Epaphroditus had done is the church at Philippi wanted to help take care of Paul while he was in prison. And Epaphroditus offered to be the one to take it. And this wasn't an easy journey. He took this journey to bring this sustenance, this care to Paul, at great risk to himself. And as you see, he got really sick on the trip. And he actually almost died. But he kept pressing on because he placed the needs of Paul and service to others above his own needs. He was willing to die in his love of and service to Paul just as Christ was obedient unto death. It was another echo, another person who's showing a shadow of Christ's story. And what Paul's doing through these two stories is he's showing that the Christian life is not measured in success or failure, but obedience to God and growth in the practice of love and service to others. Because think about it, would Epaphroditus have been any less worthy of emulation if he died on that journey? I mean, would, would Timothy be less worthy of emulating if he went to the Philippians and because of his genuine concern and care, the church didn't grow by a single person? Is Paul at this time less worthy of emulation because he's in prison? He's not out doing new church plants right now. He is not successful in any measure of the, the, the word that we would use in the world right now. He's in prison. He needs people to bring him food. But the Christian life, and we can't overstate the importance of this, is not about success or failure. It's about obedience to God and practice of loving God and others and living out that life that points people towards Christ. And that's what makes the Christian life worthy of emulation. See, D.A. Carson, who's a a New New Testament biblical scholar, he puts it this way. He says that for Paul, the Christian life is caught, not taught. 
And he says that in the scriptures, we're called to emulate worthy Christian leaders, and we're called to be leaders worthy of emulation. God help us. And I love that he ends with God help us there, because we can't do that on our own, but it's what we're called to do. And this is why we need community. We need mature Christians to look up to and learn from, and we need to be on our way to becoming mature Christians that others can look up to and learn from. We can't live a Christian life by ourselves, and we sure as heck can't live a Christian life for ourselves. But Paul, he doesn't leave this section He actually gives the Philippians, he shows them people who are out living in the ways that they can to reflect Christ's story, and he gives the church at Philippi a specific way that because of their privileges and status they have as Philippians, that they can do this as well themselves. So this is the the one we were talking about earlier, 320 to 321. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So I know we've done it a few times, but it bears repeating. Just kind of remember what the city at Philippi was. So Philippi was a, a city in the Roman Empire, and it had the status that every city would have wanted. It was declared a Roman colony. And there's a lot of benefits that came with that. But the primary reason that it was declared a Roman colony is because at this time, there were a lot of Roman soldiers who were basically getting towards retirement age. They were old, and they were about to be out of the military. And so Caesar at this time declared Philippi a colony and gave these soldiers land in Philippi to encourage them to move there, to live there. So Philippi has this influx of all these old, grizzled Roman soldiers and Roman citizens. And the reason that Caesar did this is because you don't want thousands of Roman soldiers all of a sudden showing back up in your city after years of being out on the battlefield. Rome was overpopulated. It was dirty. It didn't have enough food for the people that were there. It was over a million people in this time. And so Caesar, to encourage these soldiers not to come flooding back into Rome, gives them this land in Philippi and declares it a Roman colony. So that came with not having to pay any taxes to Caesar as a city. That's a pretty sweet deal. That also sounds better and better the older I get, too. Um, It came with... The promise that if Philippi was ever in trouble, that the Roman army would be mustered and sent to protect Philippi. It was close enough by boat that the Roman army could have got there pretty quickly. And they promised, Caesar promised, he served as, or he was the lord of Philippi, Caesar was, because it was in the Roman Empire. And as their status as a colony, he promised to be the savior of of Philippi if they need it. And Paul, in writing this, 
is being really subversive of the culture of that city and probably some of the members of the church who would have been Roman citizens, maybe even some of these ex-Roman soldiers might have found their way to Christ and to this, this church. Because he's saying that no, don't think of Caesar in that way. Caesar is not Lord and Savior. Christ is Savior. He uses this word Savior here, which we're really used to that, right? We hear Christ referred to as Savior all the time. But Paul actually very, very rarely uses that word in his writings. He's specific in using the word Savior here because that is a Caesar term at this time. And he's letting them know that no, that doesn't apply to Caesar. That applies to Christ. And secondly, that word citizenship you see up there, that's actually the only time we ever see Paul use that word. It's very specific to this church in Philippi because they would have thought of themselves as citizens of Rome who just happened to live in Philippi. And Paul's using this term citizenship because he says, no, as a follower of Christ, you're a citizen of heaven who just happens to live in Philippi. Now, don't get me wrong, because people hear this incorrectly a lot. Paul is not writing, and Christianity is not a religion that is about escaping this world and getting to a a sweet, sweet home in heaven. That's not what Paul's writing about here. Paul isn't saying that someday we'll go to heaven and that's our hope, which is probably what many of you have probably heard. But no, remember he's subverting what they thought of themselves as citizens of Rome, and Caesar would not have wanted these people coming back to Rome at all. Being a citizen of Rome didn't mean someday I'll go back there. It meant that from there, we eagerly await a savior. We're citizens of heaven now. And just as the expectation that a citizen of Rome and Philippi would have had to bring the Roman civilization and what it stood for to Philippi, our role is to be the people bringing the civilization of heaven into the community in which we've been placed now. Our walk as a citizen of heaven is always representative of heaven. Now, this really hit home with me, this idea. A few years ago, uh, Haley and I went to England, and we went over there because my brother's in the military, and he was stationed over there with his family. And so we were going over there, and my whole family's going over there to see them. Hadn't seen them in a little while. And one day, me and Haley decided to take a trip into London. I'd never been. She'd been once before on a school trip, but I'd never been to London. So one day, we're just me and Haley, we're going to go in and see London. And one of the first things we did was go to Westminster Abbey. And I was really excited about this. I am a church architecture nerd. I love it. The two most beautiful things in the world to me are my wife and a flying buttress. Which is a joke about like five people probably can really get there, but, but it's true. I love church architecture, especially like that Middle Ages church architecture. Westminster Abbey was built in the 11th century. And it's been the place that since then every king and queen of England has been 
coronated. Uh, they've been crowned. And so we went there first. You know, I honestly probably could have charged like $5 a person and given my own tour. Like, I was, I was really excited. I understood, like, the weight of what this building was. I appreciated the history of it. But we get there, and kind of the first thing you can do, there's a line to where you can get these free audio tours that they provide. And the audio tours come in over a hundred languages. And what you do is when you get to the front of the line, you indicate what language you want the tour in. So me and Haley are going up, and we get to the front of the line, and it's this Anglican priest who's handing out the tours. And we get to the front, and he's looking down. He hadn't looked up at us, but I'd seen the way it was working, so I said, English. He's looking down, and he says, okay, what country? Because they have a few different dialects. Of, of English, and I said America. Now I want to clarify. I did not say America, <laughs> and I think me and Haley were dressed appropriate to the occasion. I, but he looked up as soon as I said America. He looked up and he went, of course, <laughs> and just kind of like handed us the audio tours. He looked at me, he looked me up and down like I was wearing an Uncle Sam tank top with a screaming bald eagle on my shoulder. I don't, I still to this day, I don't know what was going on. I don't know what inspired that reaction. I don't know how he surmised that if he looked at me first, he would have been like, America, keep going. Um, But something based on previous experiences previous experiences he'd had, things he'd observed over the years, led him to know that he could have identified me as an American, and he seemed to have a bad taste in his mouth about that. But as I was working through my sermon, I I thought back to that moment. I said, do I think that my walk would lend someone to identify me as a citizen of heaven? as a representative of Christ on earth that quickly? Do I think about the fact that my walk is always of heaven? So when I do things, that's reflective of Christ. It changes people's opinion about him and about my future citizen brothers and sisters who are going to come in the future. This guy had had some sort of experience where He already had this preconceived notion. And every day that we go out and we live as a citizen of Christ, we should be different from the world. We should be able to be identified as such, and we should keep in mind that our walk is always of heaven. And none of this stuff would matter if Christianity was a religion that was about our hope is heaven, and it's just about getting up there as quick as I can. Christianity is about the hope and the knowledge that hope is in heaven and that he's coming back think about the Lord's prayer I referenced this earlier we don't pray our father who art in heaven to thy kingdom I come my will is to be done here right we pray thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and if that's what we desire then we should be the people bringing the civilization of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, now. Giving people glimpses into what that perfect future new heavens and earth will be like. 
And we should be doing this in the communities we've been placed and called to. See, Paul expects the Philippians to recognize how they can prioritize and cast aside these Roman statuses to live out Christ's story now as citizens of heaven. And he's given them examples of people doing this in their own ways and himself and Timothy and Epaphroditus. Because the Bible warns us against thinking that this world is all there is, but it warns us even stronger against thinking that this world is a waste of time. Paul is revealing to us in Philippians a critical reality of the gospel, and that's Christ's story fundamentally alters and reshapes our story. And I'll close here. Not going to beat Spurgeon. But in closing, I read an article recently. It was about this architect. And he had lived in kind of a smaller to medium-sized city in the USSR. And during that time, this city had a lot of history. But when the USSR was in power, they tore down a lot of the old buildings that were beautiful. And, and in their place, put up these kind of uniform, drab buildings that over time and over the years started becoming decrepit. And after the fall of the USSR, the city council of this city came to this architect and asked him to design and build a beautiful new building right in the center of town. They couldn't afford to, to redo the whole city yet, but they wanted this new building to be an announcement of the new era and a shift and change in the way that things are so it could be a beacon of hope of what was to come. And the architect was very old by this point. He'd been around for a long time. But this is the chance he'd been waiting for. And he poured all he had into the design of this building. And he actually saw the foundations laid. And at that point, he was very sick. And he knew he wasn't going to see it through to the end. So he started working with his co-workers, with other architects, giving them these really detailed instructions and plans on how to continue the building after he was gone. And they asked him, they said, why do you continue to work so hard? You're going to die soon. You won't see the end of this. And his reply, what he said, is that when I am gone, I don't want people to think of me. I want them to think of this beautiful building. You have to make it that it stands as a lighthouse in a dark storm, showing people that there is such a thing as beauty, even if everything around is ugliness. And that is my role. Christ's story is beautiful. It's joyful. And we want to point to that story with the way that we live our own and say that in all this ugliness that's around, there's beauty and there's hope. And one day, that beauty and hope is coming back. And on that day, we're going to have a new heavens, a new earth. All of creation is going to be redeemed. And that's the Christian hope.
That's what we show and live and walk every day, exemplifying our calling as citizens of heaven. And this other-oriented, self-sacrificial, obedient-to-God way of life, that is the best possible view. That one gets me every time. I'm sorry. That is really the best possible you to point to that light in the darkness and say one day that is going to be everywhere. You guys pray with me. God, we know how beautiful your story is. We pray that we can even be just a shadow of the life that Christ lived for all of us and to constantly point back to that. We want to be the people bringing heaven to the world now, showing the world beauty and hope in a time and a place that's filled with so much ugliness. We know and we trust and we pray that one day all this will be redeemed. And as we eagerly await our Savior from heaven, we excitedly live as citizens of heaven in the community and in the world now.